I'm Tom Perumian, KTSA News. Hi there, Jack Riccardi. Welcome to the Jack Riccardi Show on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Our show uh, happens live Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 p.m., mainly because we've been on in all the other time slots that KTSA has. So this was the one that was left. But, but we're... But we're happy to be here and glad you're here. And you can jump in and join the show at 210-599-5555. I'm not sure what is a weirder answer. When they asked the president over the weekend, last weekend, about the horrific fire in Hawaii and the death toll, and he said no comment. I think that was when he was on his bike. Or then uh, earlier this week, when he was asked about uh, details about his planned trip to the scene of the deadly wildfires, can you tell us about your Hawaii trip, sir, asks a reporter. President answers, no, not now. He um, was giving a speech about Bidenomics on Tuesday when he said, I apologize because I try very hard to keep my speeches between 15 and 18 minutes, but I got to talk a little bit about Hawaii. Like, I'm sorry I'm wasting your time with this, but, uh, you know, going to gonna have to talk about it. He says, quote, the Army helicopters helped fire suppression efforts on the Big Island because there's still some burning on the Big Island. Well, no, not the one that, not the one where you see on television all the time mixing up the Big Island and Maui. And then they said they wouldn't go because they'd get in the way of the relief efforts, and then they said they would go on Monday, this coming Monday, after his vacation in Lake Tahoe. He's on his way to another vacation. I think he's leaving tonight for Lake Tahoe. And it turns out that the last truly um, competent official in the state of Hawaii was Steve McGarrett from Hawaii Five O. I mean, I'm not kidding. I, I just, I, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of blown away for such a small state by how many uh, incompetence they have at the highest levels. Like, if you were hiring, say you were doing a talent search for an important position in the government of the state of Hawaii, it seems like you'd have a lot of applicants. It seems like there'd be a lot of people that would apply, who'd have a lot of qualification, and you could really have, like, it would be hard to get good people, right, to come live and work in Hawaii. The head of the Maui Emergency Management Agency is a guy named Herman Andaya. And this is the guy who didn't set off the warning sirens as these apocalyptic uh, uh, conflagrations swept through the island. And he explained yesterday why he didn't set off the sirens. Cut number seven. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. And the reason why... And so many people said they could have been saved if they had time to escape. Had a siren gone off, they would have known that there was a crisis emerging. And as we know, so many bodies... This is a reporter. Do you want him to give you the answer? Or another guy comes to his rescue. Let him finish... Let him finish. Well, you're talking, you're not letting him talk. If you want to talk, come up here. Come up here, quick guy. Wait. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis, and that's the reason why 
Many of them are found, almost all of them are found, on the coastline. The public is trained to seek higher ground in the event that the siren is sounded. In fact, mm. on the website of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, the firing guideline is provided. If you are in a low-lying area near the coastline, evacuate to high grounds, inland or vertically to the fourth floor and higher of a concrete building. Alerts may also come in the form of a wireless emergency alert. Had we sounded the siren that night, we're afraid that people would have gone Malka. Mm. And if that was the gone case, Malka, then they would have gone that means gone to the mountains. He's, so he's lying be- through his teeth because if you go to the website, it says that they're emergency event sirens or something like that. They're, they're multi-purpose uh, sirens. And the idea is when you hear the sirens, you're supposed to, well, in the old days, you would have turned on a television or radio. In the, in, in the new era, you would check your phone and you would find out the nature of the emergency. So the sirens are to tell you something really bad is happening. Then you find out what it is, and then you do the right thing. So no, people would not have just run to the mountains <laughs> when they heard a siren. And that's being called out as a lie. People who know say that's ridiculous. Um, this guy, Andaya, uh, is totally underqualified for his job as the emergency management guy. He's got a four-year liberal arts degree. His highest level of experience was he was chief of staff for a small-time city politician. They hired him in 2017 when they, when they conducted what they claim was a nationwide talent search. But he had been the chief of staff to the then mayor of the city. So he, he shouldn't have the job. He doesn't know how to do it. He was totally the wrong guy on that day. And now he's not only lying about what he did or didn't do, but the other officials at the news conference are white knighting. They're stepping in. They're, hey, leave him alone. Be nice to him. Don't interrupt him. He says his um, qualifications to do emergency management consist of, quote, I took online FEMA trainings. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but that's horrible. That is horrible. The the local officials in Hawaii are making sure that no one thinks Joe Biden's response was the worst one. Here's another guy. Um, And and this, by the way, is this cannot be comforting to the victims uh, to hear this, these, these shambling, rambling, disingenuous responses. People died and they're trying to cover their butts. He's, they would have died anyway, he's basically saying. Um, this is a guy who would not, his name is Kaleo Manuel. Um, he is the director of land and natural resources. He refused to release water, uh, inland water, as the fire raged. Listen to him talk about water. This is not recently, this is a little while ago. He talked about water. Cut number eight. The commission is responsible per, per our authorizing statute to protect and manage all water resources in the state. One water is like taking it and looking at it from a holistic system perspective. And that's not diff- any different than how Hawaiians traditionally managed water. You know, in, in essence, we treated it, and Native Hawaiians treated water as one of the earthly manifestations of a god in a kua, kane. Mm. And so mm. that reverence um, for a resource and that reciprocity in relationship was was something that was really really important to our worldview and and well-being right and living in an island in isolated from other mm. you know civilizations mm. um 
And so I think where it shifted to today or over time is that we've become used to looking at water as like something which we use and mm-hmm. not necessarily something w- mm-hmm. that we revere as mm. that thing that gives us life. Right. I mean, to me, it's a shift in value set. Um, and, you know, if we can start to really look at how we as humans in an island um, can reconnect to that traditional value set. So really my motto is always like, let water oh. connect us and not divide us. Like we, we can mm. share it, mm. but it yeah. requires true conversations about equity. Oh, equity. Did you hear all that? Now that's not, that, that's something you said before the fire, but imagine the guy in charge of releasing the water thinks water is to be revered, not used. I think when there's a fire, you should use it. I think you can, I think you can revere it and use it. Like, revere it as you're using it. Like, does anyone, would anyone, would anyone have thought, in the path of the fire, would anyone have thought, you know, I, I hope they don't use water here because it's a manifestation of our divinity. I, I, who are these people? How did they find them? How did they get all of them to Hawaii? How did they manage not to lure better people? They could have had anybody. You could get the, 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 the equivalent guy from any state. Hey, you want to work in Hawaii? I'll, I'll, I'll pack my bags. I'm on my way. Who wouldn't take the job? You could get them from almost anywhere. You could get better people, smarter people. I don't know. They might be white men. I don't know. That might be the drawback. But, I mean, come on. Uh, they interviewed a guy. Um, did I send you the cut, Don, of the guy that was... Um, I can't remember now if I sent it to you or not. The guy that, that witnessed the fire starting. Did I send you that? I don't see where that is on the sheet. Can we play that? This is a this is a guy, Shane something or other is his name. And he um he saw a the, as we talked about yesterday, there was a windstorm, uh hurricane force winds, um, and the winds were threatening the power lines, and when the winds prevail like that in that area the power company the utility is supposed to cut the power so that when when and if the lines come down and they will come down they're dead they're already dead he saw a live wire come down take a listen to this guy's uh, narrative oh this is live right across the street from my house freaking power line just went down i hear a pop coming from across the street as soon as i hear the pop all i heard is like electrical like going on the ground there look there's a power line right there See them right there, that's the power line that started. Started from up the road there, and all of that is still burning. From there, to me, it simulated a fuse, like somebody lit a fuse for a firework, and it just followed a straight line all the way up to the pole where the thing was, and it landed in a bigger pile of dry grass, and that just ignited. You get all this wind blowing, and now you got a fire just that was fueling just in a matter of minutes. That whole place was just engulfed. They came up with a water truck, started dousing it, had another couple local uh, construction companies brought up their water tankers, just also helped and assist and just knocking down the fire. Hey, heads up, the line is live on the ground right there. He's telling the firefighters now. I sent my family away ready. Thank you. We thought it was all contained. Them. And then from there, just went ahead about our day, thinking that it was all done. Unbeknownst that later on that afternoon, the winds just continued to just smoke the whole day. And I guess that's what just fueled the restarting. Yeah, I'm happy that it was out there. 
for them to see. And a lot of them got warning when they saw the Facebook Live. Maybe it'll bring closure to some of the family to answer some of the questions, help determine what was the start. His name is Shane Treyu, I think is how you say it. He, he's a hotel worker. He, I learned more from him than I did from the uh, briefings from the so-called state officials. And then I read this was interesting. Um, a few years ago, they had a very active wildfire season, and they were very worried uh, about something really bad happening. So this was in the Wall Street Journal. So the Hawaiian Electric, the utility company, uh, uh, did a study, and they determined that they needed to increase the safety of their infrastructure so that sparks from damaged power lines would not start wildfires. Because just a few years ago, they had what was then the worst wildfire season in their recorded history. Like, I think it was 2018 or 2019. So they did a study, and they said, we really got to clean things up. They spent less than $250,000 doing that, and apparently didn't accomplish very much in terms of wildfire risk. They spent much more money millions on promoting green energy. And I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but every time we turn around, we find somebody talking about green energy in a way that is ignorant of reality and ignorant of people's needs. It's always about green energy when our question is not about green energy. It's about keeping people safe or keeping the lights on, or providing enough power. Here we are, a growing state, a state to whom everyone's fleeing from around the country, but we didn't keep up with it. We didn't grow our grid uh, proportionate to our population, and now we're getting warnings from ERCOT and CPS that we need to conserve because of the temperature. We're not having to conserve because of the temperature. We're having to conserve because you didn't keep up with the population. There is something about energy management that has become completely incompetent. I, look, if you want to advocate for green energy in the future, that's your right to free speech. But if your job right now is energy, do your job right now. And when it comes to public safety, we're seeing the beginnings of a massive cover-your-ass operation by these officials. They haven't even found all the victims yet. But they're making damn sure that their political careers are not the victims. Isn't that, isn't that what it looks like? Is it just me? It's just, um, it's, a, it's a tragedy, and there's no taking away from that. By the way, we're going to talk to another local business that's helping people out and getting support up to, uh, out to uh, people in Maui, if you're interested in that. It, it's a tragedy, and, and, and that's first and foremost. And we pray, and we will give and we feel these are our fellow Americans. But because we're here and we're not there and we're not in the middle of this, we have a home to go back to or come home to or what have you, we can also start to look at this and say, you know, this is, we're the country. We're the country that used to show other countries how it's done. In the 50s and 60s, my uncle was an architectural engineer. And not a famous one or anything, but he would be traveling all the time. Because for every 
project he seemed to do in Boston, he had one that he was consulting on in, you know, Brazil or Portugal or somewhere else. Because American know-how was sought after, and I'm sure still is. Like, I'm sure we're still the country that teaches them how to do it. But, but we're not good at it here anymore. We have people in positions of real responsibility. I'm not talking about the poet laureate. You're the emergency services director. Like you got to be a, you got to be a, like a super serious, wonky, nerdy, immersed in your binders kind of guy. You 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 can't be somebody that got the job because of diversity and equity. You can't be somebody that that, that that's you know that has a, a an altar in their home and, and prays to the water god. That that is crazy talk. I mean, it's offensively crazy. So it would be bad enough if this had just happened and there was nothing anyone could have done about it. God help them. But it looks like it actually didn't have to be as bad as it was. It looks like a combination of bad decisions about land management and water ahead of time, bad management of the utility company, which like all of them now is is a green energy virtue signaling machine, not an energy generating entity. And then cover your ass decisions after the fire. Oh, well, we didn't want to use the sirens because uh, we're afraid people would have done the wrong thing. This doesn't look like the country that shows the rest of the world how to do things. This looks like the country that botched its withdrawal from Afghanistan. This looks like the country that when it launches a new government website for health care or uh, immigration or college debt, the the website immediately crashes. You, you're noticing this, right? I mean, like, we're not good at the stuff we always used to be good at. And this isn't even just a Democrat or Republican thing. I think some of this is is the, the emphasis on diversity hiring over merit hiring. Uh, I think some of this is um, we now seem to value the number of degrees a person has or uh, uh, abbreviations after their name versus real-world experience. Like maybe maybe 50 years ago, people that ran emergency services were people that had run like a logistics operation or even a, 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 you know, a major military operation. And so you, you, you didn't have to question, do they know their stuff? Do they know how to do it? Will they prioritize? Will they delegate? You knew they would. These people don't look like that. And people are taking positions, accepting positions that they know they're not capable of. Look, if you want to find a sinecure for some guy that worked for your campaign, you want to stash him somewhere in government for some job where he makes six figures and he just shows up, I get it. That's always going to be how it is. But don't put him in charge of saving people's lives. You know, please, because that's what it looks like. And you wonder how many other states, how many other places around government there is a person who in an emergency we would all be literally counting on life and death and they're as incompetent and, and unaware as these people seem to be from what we're seeing in Hawaii. 210-599-5555. So we're going to kick that around a little bit. Um, on the JR poll today, would you say you are very comfortable with your financial situation? I'm not trying to be nosy. I'm not asking about your financial situation. But Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen did an interview this week on CNN where she said she was asked by the host, Aaron Burnett, 
what do you say to a clear Amer- majority of Americans who simply don't believe that this administration is helping them? And Yellen corrected Aaron Burnett, citing a poll, I'm not sure what poll, that says over 70% of Americans say they're very comfortable with their financial situation. Are you very comfortable with your financial situation? Again, not asking for particulars. Would you agree with that statement? Would you say you are very comfortable? Man, if Jerry Moss has passed away, if you've never heard of him, that's okay. You probably heard of A&M Records. He's the M in A&M Records. He started that record label with Herb Alpert, A&M. Jerry Moss was 88 when he passed away in Bel Air yesterday. Um, an incredible uh, life in the record business, discovered all kinds of artists and acts, was responsible for bringing forward everybody from, well, from Herb Alpert and Sergio Mendez to Joe Cocker and Free and Super Tramp and uh, Cat Stevens, the Carpenters, the Police, the Go-Go's, Janet Jackson, um, I believe even some re- more recent uh, uh you know, artists. Uh, I think he had something to do with uh, discovering garbage and um, just a bunch of others. But uh, one of those people that lived a, a charmed and incredible um, life. And like a lot of people who were instrumental in getting music out to the masses, uh, was not a musician. You know, my favorite story of like that is Clive Davis, the guy that was the head of CBS Records, and then founded Arista Records and J Records. He was the lawyer. He was the corporate lawyer at Columbia Records. Knew nothing about music. Didn't even like music. Didn't even listen to music. And they put him in charge of it. And he's a a middle-aged guy with a comb over doing this this deal where he's going to nightclubs and, and, you know, rock festivals. But he had a knack for talking to artists and listening and hearing and figuring it out, and and uh, and Jerry Moss had that uh, same uh, touch. He was 88 years old, so we'll talk more about him a little bit later on. Jack, you know, one of my favorite stories about A&M mm. was that they, they signed the Sex Pistols, and I think within several weeks, they dropped the band after they kind of figured well, out. Well, I'm not surprised, because in the early days, their, their rep was kind of to be like the easy listening, mm-hmm. you know, Record label. That's why they had the Carpenters and Sergio Mendez. It was like pleasant. Yeah, I could see where that would not mm-hmm. be a good. Yeah, I don't remember not, the. I don't remember the backstories why they no. dropped them. I think because maybe because of the music that they obviously recorded. But uh, dr- EMI, I think, had dropped them, and so A and M had picked them up and signed them. And uh, within a w- couple of weeks or so, they dro- dropped the contract. Yeah. I got to say, I, when I was in music radio, and I, this is, I guess, a confession, but um, we would, we, you'd have these people around all the time that were, we, they were just called reps, and they were promoters of whatever that label, whether it was Arista or EMI or A&M or RCA, and they were kind of nuisances. They were kind, to me, they were kind of a little bit, they felt a little sleazy, and they would always butter you up, and um you know, they were doling out free records and stuff. And now that I look back on it, I wish I had had the maturity to, like, talk to them. Because they probably knew a lot, and they probably had been around artists, and they probably had all these backstories that we now love to hear and love to tell. 
I bet these guys had them. I know they did, and, and women. But uh, just at the time, I was like, oh, I can't be bothered with this. And um, you learn. You figure it out. There's not as many. I, I don't think there's as much of that as there used to be. But there used to be a lot of people. You'd see them coming into the radio stations. Because even though radio stations would get their records uh, in the mail, these people would come in and meet with the music director. Were you a music director, Don, at one time in your 88-year One career? time many years ago. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about, right? They would Ab- kind oh, of absolutely. schmooze you and I mean you had to like you had to like make time for them. I mean that was a big part of your day was mm-hmm. taking their calls mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So Yeah. It was it was um, fun I want to play this time. because um I I I found this interesting. I this happened um this is actually a couple of days old now, but uh Neil Cavuto had Vivek Ramaswamy on. And you know how Cavuto kind of, I don't know if it's an actor, he, he really is a middle-of-the-road guy, but he kind of doesn't play favorites between the Republicans and the Democrats, which is unusual on Fox. He had Vivek Ramaswamy on, and he was talking about, this was after we got the indictments of uh, Trump in Atlanta, and um, they kind of got salty with each other about uh, Ramaswamy saying that um, he would if elected president, would pardon uh, Donald Trump. Uh, So listen to this exchange, and then we'll talk about it. Cut number nine. This is a big deal. We can't sort of minimize it or slough it aside. Of course it's a big deal, and that's exactly why I'm... So let me ask you, when you talk about wanting to pardon Donald Trump for this, why? What What would be good about that if you became president of the United States to pardon him? I think the right answer for this country is to move forward, not to get into a weaponized tug of war between two political parties that then make a habit of using politicized police force against their political opponents. That is the stuff of banana republics. That is not what I want to see the United States of America devolve into. We should be able to disagree, disagree fiercely with one another, but still sort out those disagreements through our civic process, culminating at the ballot box. Well, every person's voice and vote counts equally. That is how we do things in the United States, not by eliminating our opponents using backdoor mechanisms. And so my reason, my chief reason for pardoning Donald Trump, at least of the federal offenses, which will be what's in my power, that includes the New York state offenses because they include the charge of an underlying federal offense as well. It will be to move this nation forward because my motivation in being U.S. President, Neil, is that I don't want to lead us to a national divorce. We're skating on thin ice as a country right now. That is a fact. I want to lead us to a national revival. That will take fortitude. That is also why I'm saying even now, when it would be in my self-interest as a candidate to see Donald Trump eliminated, by some counts that would put me at number one in the Republican primary polls, that is not how I want to see it done, which is why I've been so particular about being vocal on this, because I stand on the side of principle over partisan politics. Hmm. I think that's a... I think that's a very smart answer. And what I like about it is you can make you can you can make a a a legit argument for or against talking about pardons at this point. As I said the other day, to talk about pardons is to sort of impute conviction. Um but his the way he answered it, it had it almost had almost nothing to do with Trump. It wasn't defensive of Trump. It wasn't, oh, poor Trump. It was, I think we need to move forward. Um, I think this is how we get past all this. We get through all this. See, I think there will be people 
who are not very political, who don't follow news very closely, and when they start to look at the candidates, um, if if Vivek Ramaswamy is still around in the in the field, I mean, th- that's that's an answer they will like. People that say I'm tired of both of them, I'm sick of both parties, I, I cannot believe we're going to have Biden versus Trump again. That's the way you talk to them. He he has a, and he had that answer the other day. We didn't play it. He had that answer the other day about where he was confronted about uh, about a guy that was a pansexual and um, was pressing him, trying to you know kind of trap him on uh, was he did he have a negative view of same sex couples and so forth. And he gave he gave a pretty thoughtful answer. I. I, there's things I don't know about Vivek Ramaswamy. There are things I don't know about how much of this he can actually do. But I do think his instincts, his intelligence is is off the charts. And uh, I just kind of like the way he carries himself, the way he handles these things. I like the way that he does interviews and talks with people who confront him. Um, I, to me, that's appealing. I think there's no downside to that. Um, when you're in the lead like Trump is, you can avoid that stuff. Like Trump doesn't have to go to the debates. I understand that. But if you're not Trump, then you do have to be engaging and engage, and this guy does it. And can you imagine anybody the Democrats would put up on a debate stage uh, getting the better of him? I really can't. I think that's that's a very important consideration in this. All right, so um, you can join the show at 210-599-5555. This has kind of been lost in the shuffle. Uh, You know, we keep... We have this like very short attention span. We keep moving on to things. Uh, remember after the the Nashville church school shooting that killed three children and three adults, and <clears throat> the shooter was a female to male transgender who left behind a so-called manifesto. And um, there was a lot of confusion about this collection of writings or this writing uh at at various times we heard that it would never be released it was about to be released it would soon be released part of it would be released local state and federal authorities of different kinds have now seen it and have all said they will not make its contents public In a message to someone just before the shooting, the killer wrote, One day this will make more sense. I've left more than enough evidence behind. And the reason I bring this up now is because Vivek Ramaswamy, and it seems kind of odd or off message, has been saying this is wrong. The government should allow people to read what's in that manifesto. Quote, um, it's stonewalled silence. He says he believes that when government officials don't want us to know something, it's because they fear we would think or act in ways they wouldn't like if we knew it. And in fact, we know from our own experience that people in government seldom keep things secret that would make them look good, but almost always try to keep things secret that make them look bad. And the things they protect the most are the things that reflect badly on their performance or on someone they're protecting. So if that's the rule, the, the, the more tightly held the secret, the more likely it is to reflect badly on them or on someone they're protecting. What is in this manifesto that is so specifically 
dangerous for people to read. Again, I don't think it's a good issue for Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president. Um, but I, I, I am really, and I wouldn't, I would, I actually wouldn't even care if they had just released it, and you could read it if you wanted to, and maybe you wouldn't even look at it. Maybe you'd have no interest in it. If I didn't have this job, I would have no interest in it. But the insistence, the consistency of no, 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 you must not let the public ever... It makes me think that something is afoot here. And it could be that they are trying very, very hard to protect people from hearing really um, blatant hatred and venom toward Christians from a trans person, like they think that would be politically incendiary. So one thought I have is, well, they're, they're protecting the trans community, which they think, they think they're protecting them. But, of course, we have enough sentiment to know that if one trans person shoots up a school, that doesn't mean that all trans people are school shooters. But they don't think very much of us are, are betters, are overlords. So that might be their, their theory. Um, or maybe it's that the revelation of this person will showcase incompetence in those that should have prevented this from happening. Remember, there was the attempted school shooting in Memphis that didn't happen because the school had such a tight security and emergency plan that the shooter never got into the building. Fired a few shots off outside, didn't get in, didn't hurt anybody, was taken down by the police. And I tend toward door number two. I, I, I actually think the more, the more secretive they are and for the longer they're secretive, the more I think this is really not about protecting the public or protecting a community of people. This is about protecting what must have been some kind of incompetence, which seems to be the theme of the hour, uh, in government. Because, again, it's, it's one thing to say we don't want to promote what a person said or, or, or glorify their despicable act. I get that. But public records, public information is kind of a thing unto itself. And when the, when the government makes available to an interested party something that belongs to us, we the people, that's not promoting it. That's just recognizing, you know, our access to it. Robert is on uh, KTSA. Robert, what do you think? Yes, hi, Jack. Good to talk to you, as always. Robert, we're really really tight on time. What was the point you were going to make about this? I don't mean to rush you, but just... No, no, sure, sure, sure. Uh, Basically, I think you're hitting the note, the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah, I I think we need to see what's in that manifesto. Uh, I've always been interested, I guess, as a side note, the Austin bomber, that guy who was going around Austin, like, bombing people, they 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 never made his public, uh, his manifesto or suicide note, and I think I will be interested to see that one too. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't I agree. And let's not let's not run it in the newspapers. Let's not paint it on billboards. But if if oh, a right. journalist, if a researcher, if somebody in law enforcement uh, or just an interested citizen wants to see it, they ought to be able to see it. I think it belongs to us in the first place. Robert, great call. Thank you, sir. Uh, we're going to go back to do one of our little uh, journeys, little musical uh, journeys back in time to this week 
1985. Where were you in 1985, summer of 85? We'll bring back a few memories. Um, Don Cooper and I were just talking off the air about the uh, the way the media are having to cover this Maui wildfire story. It's pretty clear that they, you just said this, Don, and I agree, um, it's pretty clear that they were all set to go with the well, folks, global warming is at our doorstep, and now look what's happened. This is why we can't have nice places like Maui. But they're, it looks like they're going to have to deal with, oh, we just had incompetence and you know bad land management and uh, the usual the usual stuff. Um, so many of these fires, when they've broken out in recent years, there's always this. They kind of have it like warming up in the bullpen. This angle of well, we've done it to ourselves, global warming, uh, you know. Meaning, when they report this stuff to you and me, they want to make it clear, it's my fault and yours, you know. They don't say that, of course, but I mean, the implication is, well, you people with your light bulbs and your central air and your gasoline-powered F-150s, and you just, look what you're doing. And really... What we're instead saying, it's really the opposite. These stories are um, not stories about climate science. These are stories about other sciences, like the science of forestry, of land management, water management, and and the utilities. How many electric utilities around this country have completely turned into propaganda machines for green energy instead of laboring diligently to keep people's power on so they can live in the here and now. We're not asking CPS or ERCOT or Hawaiian Electric to be a think tank. That's why we call it a utility, <laughs> because you're supposed to just do your job. That's what, that's what utility literally means. Be functional. Uh, Here's a headline. Scientists demand Britons wear face masks as new COVID variant spreads. The variant could cause a big wave, Brits have been warned. As a professor says, the UK is worryingly ill-prepared for such an event. The new variant of COVID-19, dubbed BA.X. I wonder what we're going to call that. We call it BAX. Bax uh, has turned up in uh, places as far-flung as Denmark and Israel. Some scientists are already saying it's time for masks. Dr. Tricia Greenhay, renowned expert in primary care, University of Oxford. It looks like it's time to mask up, all caps. She's excited. Professor Christina Pagel, mathematician from University College. Um says it's very, very early days, but this coronavirus variant now in two countries has a lot of new mutations that make it very different to the Omicron strains, potentially more able to cause a big wave. So mask up. Here come the masks. Back to the masks. That's what they're saying. Well, two things. Uh, First of all, Lord knows we all still have a lot of masks, right? So... That much we know. But these these folks are not hiding their um, enthusiasm very well 
Like, they don't sound like, oh, hate to tell you this, or folks, worst possible news. Time to mask up. I mean, they just, it's, it's like, uh, you know, soup's on. Very excited. And you know, you know I'm right about this. You, you, you know there are people who have been kind of down in the period since you could run up to a stranger and scream at them for not having a mask on or you could order children to be masked. You know, the school year just began. Kids aren't wearing masks. They're breathing freely. They can see each other's faces. You know there are people that are just bummed about that. Here comes BAX right on time. I'm actually thinking it's arriving a little early. I thought it would be a little closer to the... um, Oh, what's that big event we have next year, right around November of next year? You know, that thing. Yeah, I thought it would be closer to that. It may still be. Mentioned this the other day. Lawyers for the Food and Drug Administration have admitted in court that doctors, quote, do have the authority to, pre- to prescribe ivermectin to treat COVID. Doctors do have the authority to prescribe ivermectin to create COVID. Do not adjust your radio. At one time, they were saying not just the opposite, but very much the opposite, right? How dare you? It's horse paste. What are you trying to do, kill everybody? Remember that? Um, I'm sure you remember that early means of treating COVID, before we had the vaccines and even after, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and others, were shunned by the science, and then that shunning was echoed enthusiastically by the dolts on network television. And of all the things that were shunned, ivermectin got the worst of it, uh, because it was a very, very common, very inexpensive drug And they could call it horse paste or horse medicine because a form of ivermectin is used in a veterinary dosage to deworm horses. And that must have been a great day when they realized they had that talking point, right? I mean, wow. (laughs) We'll show them, right? So they went on this whole, you know, kick against ivermectin. And anybody that went public and said they used it was especially the target. Joe Rogan, the podcaster, got COVID, took ivermectin. He claims, I didn't see this, but he he tells the story in his podcast that CNN did a story about him and they tinted the footage of him to make his skin look yellowish as an, as a, as a, an effect, I guess, of taking horse dewormer. Again, I didn't see it, but that's what he says. Um, And there was kind of a hysteria uh, about him and about anyone that publicly talked about or promoted ivermectin. I can also tell you that uh, when we would, uh, I'm not going to name any names, but when we we would try to get guests, medical guests on the show, sometimes we were told that was like an off um, limits conversation. And I think they were just trying not to get canceled. I'm not knocking them. What what I think is interesting uh, here is I heard 
uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. explained this. So it would be bad enough if it was just you guys knocked ivermectin and now you're saying it's okay to use. But I heard Robert Kennedy explain this, um, and I think we have this done, don't we? Okay. So he went on with, I think this is with Joe Rogan, but a different podcast edition or episode. And he explained why uh, ivermectin in particular needed to be um, sort of demoted, degraded, as the, as the race to get people vaccinated was on, when they were really pushing vaccination, uh, ivermectin would have posed a particular problem. Listen to this, cut number three. They had to discredit ivermectin because, you know why, because there's a federal law, the federal law, the emergency use authorization statute says that you cannot issue, you cannot issue an emergency use authorization to a vaccine if there is an existing medication that has been approved for any purpose that has, that is demonstrated effective against the target illness. So they had to destroy ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and discredit it, and they had to tell everybody it's not effective, because if they had acknowledged that it's effective in anybody, the whole $200 billion vaccine enterprise would have collapsed. You know me. I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not somebody that dispenses or from whom you should take medical advice. I'm loath to talk about anything I do or have done because I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to set an example. And I'm not anti-vaccine, and I'm not anti the COVID vaccine. I am anti-mandates. Um, and I'm somebody that. In the past, I've defended big pharma, as they call it, against people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, because I do feel that when the left used to attack pharmaceutical companies for their big profits, they would always forget the fact that it costs a tremendous amount of money and takes a tremendous amount of time to develop a successful drug. And a lot of times, a great deal of money and time is expended on a uh, drug that ultimately doesn't work or has to be trashed. So... When you look at what they make and you, you, um, you know, amortize it across all of the things they try to do and research and fail at and so forth, we need the robust industry of drug development and research. I, I, I don't want to run it out of town. Um, I don't think it's all bad. I don't think it's just greed. Remember, too, the greed itself is something that motivates people to do things that ultimately benefit Humankind. I mean, greed is why every successful business was founded and every successful business provides whatever goods and services we depend on. However, however, um, if it turns out, as it is appearing to turn out, that they lied about something that would have helped people and saved lives so that they could get to something else that they really wanted and make a ton of money for everybody, and we know that millions were coming in to Fauci and Collins on their uh, on their royalties. I I don't know how they're ever gonna anyone's ever gonna trust them again. And and look, I'm not telling you whether you should or you shouldn't. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just making an observation as a guy over here on the sidelines that these people are going to be very hard to take seriously the next time they tell us, oh, there's a new variant, there's a new virus. 
we're the people that know what to do, here are the steps you need to take, here are the public service announcements. They may think they can dial it back to 2020 whenever they feel like it, but you can only have 2020 once. Then the people that you bamboozled in 2020, uh, they start to figure you out. Some of them won't or haven't, but a lot of them have. So it's going to be less easy or harder, I guess I should say, to do the next time what you did in the spring of 2020. And it's because of stuff like this. A new survey from the Generation Lab, reported by Axios News. Who do young Americans say is responsible for student loans not being forgiven? Who do they say is responsible for student loans not being forgiven? So they're not saying who's responsible for student loans. Who's responsible for them not being forgiven? 47% say the Supreme Court. 38% say Republicans. 10% say President Biden. And 5% say Democrats. I think that might have been the idea of this whole thing. Stay with me for a second. So you have heard Democrats in, in the past people like Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, and even at one time, pre-President Joe Biden, say, hey, folks, much as you might like the idea of student loan forgiveness, it's not within the power of a president to just forgive it. They told you they couldn't do it, right? Constitution won't let us. Then they said they would do it which was a contradiction of what they had previously said. But when they said that, they knew that they were constitutionally not allowed to say it. So their action, their announcement, would be negated, in all likelihood, by the Supreme Court, which it was. And the Supreme Court has been appointed by predominantly Republicans, predominantly Donald Trump. So when people got the offer of forgiveness, and then it was yanked away by the Supreme Court, it gave the Democrats a twofer. They had done something for which they could take credit. Hey, we tried. And they got the Republicans to play the role of the bad guy, which they are always willing to step up and do. Gee, folks, we wanted to forgive your student loan debt. But those damn greedy Republicans, you know, the ones that push grandma off a cliff, they just wouldn't wouldn't let us do it. We we heard you. We 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 feel you. We care about you. But they don't. I mean, I, I could be wrong and maybe I'm overthinking it, but that just seems like a that just seems like a 3D chess kind of move to me. And um and so here you have a survey that that basically has it backwards. <laughs> um, if you want to know who's responsible for student loans not being forgiven, it's really the people that at any point made it sound like that was even a possibility or a good policy, and it was neither. Those were the Democrats. To my knowledge, unless I'm missing something, I don't think the Republicans ever ran on that. And... Yet, they're going to get the blame for it if this 
survey is correct. It is now time. Music. Top 10 board. We'll start with number 10. Where were you this week in 1985? What was going on in your world? Just getting that radio career started, young guy. 1985. We're going to go through the top 10 songs this week in 85. You know, probably just about every 80s song was in a movie, but three of the top 10 this week were movie themes, including the one we find here at number 10, the late, great Tina Turner coming off her history-making private dancer album, doing the title theme and some acting for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Acting opposite Mel Gibson and moving up four to number 10 this week in 1985. We Don't Need Another Hero by Tina Turner. The song at number nine this week is uh, one that belongs to Brian Adams. It's his big hit from 85, The Summer of 69. When they wrote the lyrics uh, to this uh, song, Jimmy Quit, Jody Got Married, those refer to actual band members and those in the Brian Adams universe that left for those exact reasons. So those are real people. There's always been a rumor about Summer of 69 that it was a reference to the sexual position, and uh, people have kind of joked about that uh over the years, the uh, co-writer of the song with Brian Adams, Jim Valens, says, no, it's just a reference to a year. He says he was inspired by Jackson Brown's song, Running on Empty, which contains references to various years in the singer's life. So number nine is Summer 69. Number eight is the band DeBarge. And they're at number eight with Who's Holding Donna Now? I was working on a very, very, very soft rock station in the summer of 85. We played this song a lot. Uh, backed up by uh, Mr. Mister's lead singer, Richard Page. That's El DeBarge, who's holding Donna now. Uh, we're in this week in 1985, and that brings us up to the song at number seven. Uh, a lot of guest musicians on this one, too, from the band Mr. Mister and REO Speedwagon, helping British singer John Parr with the theme from the 1985 movie St. Elmo's Fire. I'm not the 
Send Elmo Fire was one of those uh, Brat Pack movies with Demi Moore, Rob Lowe, and others. St. Elmo's Fire at number seven this week in 1985, which brings us to a man sometimes called the king of covers. So many great covers of other artists' hits, but oftentimes his version would be so much a bigger hit that people wouldn't know it was the cover. This one is a cover of a Hall & Oates song, Every Time You Go Away, Paul Young. A lot of his hits were covers. I'm going to tear your playhouse down. Uh, he covered the Shy Lights, Oh Girl, a few years uh, after this one. Um, and, of course, just a great blue-eyed British soul singer, Paul Young, who's been uh, touring with Rick Springfield most recently. Still out there, still active. Paul Young. Uh, that takes us up to number five on This Week in 1985. And it's Aretha Franklin having a big career resurgence with a hit called Freeway of Love. Such an incredible career. Such a great song. She did an album with uh, Clarence Clemens, the saxophonist from Springsteen's band. You can really hear him on this song. And uh, this uh, song had kind of a poignant uh, postscript because many, many, many years later, when Aretha Franklin passed away and they had her funeral uh, in August of 2018, there were 100 pink Cadillacs in the uh, funeral procession. The Freeway of Love, Aretha Franklin. Sting is uh, going to resume his world tour next month with dates in Atlantic City, Toronto, Boston, and he'll be at the Moody Center in Austin September 17th. And, of course, he's one of those people that Jerry Moss had on A&M Records. Here he is at number four with If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. This is the first single off the uh, solo album, Dream of the Blue Turtles. I love this song. Sing, if you love somebody, set them free. Number three is by the singer Corey Hart from Canada and uh, was a huge MTV song because he's a pretty good-looking dude. Never Surrender. Corey says he was brought up to believe uh, that you should never quit on yourself. And he became a big admirer. He's a history buff. He became a big admirer of uh, Sir Winston Churchill. And, of course, Churchill used that expression, never surrender, 
during the dark days of the Battle of Britain. So who knew when we were hearing that song on the radio in 85 that Corey Hart was channeling Winston Churchill? I wouldn't have guessed. Uh, at number two is the third of three movie songs. It's on its way to number one from the Back to the Future soundtrack for Huey Lewis and the News, Power of Love. had a great uh, time visiting with Huey uh, in the WBBF uh, studios back in 1988. He performed live for us and did an interview, talked about a lot of things. He told a great story about this song. He did not want to do a movie song. He said, I knew nothing about that end of the business. Uh, and he only agreed to do this song for Back to the Future when they assured him that the song did not have to refer to the movie in any way. And in fact, Power of Love doesn't refer to the movie in any way. Huey Lewis and the News at number two this week in 1985. And that takes us to what was, this week in 1985, the number one song. Number Shout by Tears for Fears was the second single released from the legendary Songs from the Big Chair album, but it was actually one of the last songs included on that album. And Roland Orzabal says uh, it is definitely a song about political protest, not, as some people thought, a song about primal scream therapy or shouting to let it all out. He says, no, it's about, it's about protesting. And um, it eventually... Uh, made it to the top five in England, but was a number one hit here as it is uh, spending what would be three weeks at number one this week in 1985. Shout by Tears for Fears. In, in, in this period, uh, 85, I'm working at my one of my gigs. I've got so many gigs. <laughs> I'm working at three radio stations, and I'm working at a store, and I'm going to college. Um, but anyway, uh, because we didn't borrow, uh, we didn't take student loans. We worked our asses off to go to college. But anyway, um, so one of my gigs is I do this Friday night dance music show on the college radio station. And that ends at 9 o'clock. And for a brief time, I think it was about a year or so, I got this gig because there was a nightclub complex maybe a block or two from the radio station, Kenmore Square in Boston. So I got this gig where I would go and like relieve the regular DJ at this club called Narcissus. I know it's a ridiculous name, but it's the 80s. So, and they they were kind of interested in the fact that I could play the new, current, 
stuff, which they had and their guy played, but they wanted a little bit of a retro theme. So for a few hours, I would bring in these, like, you know, Motown, disco, you know, Philly soul stuff that I played as, and I mixed into my radio show. I would, I would mix that into the, the club thing and I would spin there for a few hours and I would carry these milk cartons of 12 inch singles and albums and 45s. <clears throat> this block or two from the radio station, which was at a dormitory, to this nightclub complex, Narcissus, and uh, lug them in, lug them up the stairs into the DJ booth, which was over the dance floor, and uh, then I would be able to use their records and my records, and I had to keep mine separate from theirs and make sure I didn't leave any behind, and it was dimly lit because, you know, that's what it was. And uh, But I remember I, remember I was telling a, a friend of mine just today, I don't know how I did it. Like, I, I I was carrying milk crates full of records. I'm not a muscular guy. I wasn't then. I'm not now. And I'm walking, like, down a dark alley by myself. And not only am I doing that, at, like, to get on the, uh, on the DJ booth at 10 o'clock, but then that ended at 1 in the morning or so, maybe 1.30. Now I'm lugging them back to the radio station. And then going to my car, I mean, I don't know. I, how do you, how do you, when you look back, I'm sure we all have memories like this. When you look back at all the things you could do when you were 18 or 20, right? Like, how did I do that? And when did I sleep? I don't remember when I slept. I must have. But like you, you'd lo- now that you need that much energy, like I didn't need to do all that. But I was just doing it. Now that you need that much energy, where the heck is it? I don't think it's those things. I don't think it's those supplements they advertise on television. I think you just have to be eighteen or twenty, right? Yeah. How did that all work? Uh, but I would, t- you know, you would do when you were trying to start out in radio. You would do and take on any gig, assignment, part-time thing. So at this point, I'm doing like dance music on Friday nights. I'm working uh, like at a news and talk with some music station in the mornings during the week. I'm working at the drugstore at night during the week. And then on Saturday, I'm driving up to this super soft, very soft rock FM station, Joy FM in New Hampshire. And somehow that all worked. And I was having the time of my life. And all I could think of was, um, if I do all this, I might someday be able to have a career. In ra- My dream was, I would just like to work at one station and have a full-time job. Which is why I laugh now, and I know people mean it as a compliment, but when people ask me now, would you like to be syndicated? I don't know how to explain to them. It was my goal to get on one station. I, I, I've already had the experience of being on many stations. I just want to be on one. So I'm very happy with that. Very very grateful, very content to just work at one. I'm just curious, would these be considered the dog days? I think these are the dog days, right, of summer? I asked Bugsy, and she she said that every day is dog day. But I think these are the dog days. And I think I remember that we learned in school that 
the term dog days doesn't even apply. It's not about dogs. It's about the dog star, Sirius the dog star, so I think. But I think we're in the dog days. Anyway, glad you're here. Uh, you can join the show at 210-599-5555. Uh, there was a story in the news about a comedy festival that got called off in Scotland. Um, it was going to be one of those big events with multiple comedians on the bill. It was called Comedy Unleashed, and it's been canceled. Because one comedian on the bill, an Irish comedian named Graham Linehan, uh, tells a few transgender jokes in his stand-up, and so they canceled the festival. The venue canceled the festival, saying, quote, we are an all-inclusive venue, and this does not align with our overall values. <laughs> it's kind of funny how every time somebody describes themselves as inclusive, they're always in the act of excluding someone or something. So they have to declare themselves inclusive right before they fail to act inclusively. I guess they're not inclusive of Graham Linehan, apparently. And I know that a venue can choose its activities, and it's up to them, and it's free. You know, it's it's, it's free enterprise. But uh, I was thinking about this when I read this story. We We don't realize, I think, how much we need comedy. I mean, I love to laugh. I don't know if you do. I, I love the feeling of just laughing and lightening the burden and all that but but it's more than that we we need comedy because comedy is free speech it's not kind of free speech it is free speech and i i i think it's easier to silence comedians and we're doing a lot of that right now because comedians use language and imagery that's blunt and impolite. And when you quote a comedian out of context, I've had this conversation with Roman Garcia, among others, when you quote a comedian out of context, uh, you can make what they say sound even worse. Do you know what he says in his act? But comedy is, if you think about it, art and opinion. It's the art of crafting and delivering an opinion or observation about things around you. So it's partly art, like the timing and the pacing, right? And it's it's opinion, it's observation. Comedians are often some of the most incisive observers of us, of life. When you ban a comedian, you can say you're doing it to defend society, but you're actually smothering free speech. And if you can ban a comedian, then you can ban anybody. And that's the thing we got to understand. We may think that this is different or it's its own category because, you know, those comedians, they get a little, they get a little crazy sometimes. They get, you know, they use language and they use the F word and they're, but it, it, it is no different than banning the speech of a politician or an educator or a minister or you. And the people that do it are petty tyrants. They always claim they're, defending someone else. We don't want other people to be offended. Really, they're offended. And they claim they're white knighting for someone else, but it's about them. So if you go along with the silencing of comedians, then just know that eventually they'll come for you. Now, having said that, I want to ask you a question. I think everybody has an opinion about this. Who is a comedian that never fails to make you laugh? Who is a comedian whose work always 
does it for you. Maybe your favorite comedian, maybe somebody you heard recently, maybe a TikTok you saw recently. Who is a comedian? Give me a name that never misses with you. 210-599-5555. I mean, there's so many. I know it's hard to pick one. Maybe your all-time favorite. Maybe your current favorite. Maybe a new comedian you've heard recently that just amazed you. I have to say, um, probably in my lifetime, the funniest guy I ever saw do this, uh, and I don't want to say was like he's no longer with us because he is, but Eddie Murphy, when he was doing a lot of stand-up, for me is still the gold standard. I, I, I still think what he did and the way he did it, it was the kind of laughter that you couldn't catch your breath. Like you, you were afraid you'd miss the next line because you were still laughing at the last one. Um, so I would say Eddie Murphy. I would say currently of the comedians that are working currently, probably Dave Chappelle. I, I reference him a lot on the show. And Dave Chappelle is a good example of the kind of comedian people try to silence, but we actually need. Uh, who would it be for you? 210-599-5555. Who's the comedian that never fails uh, to make you laugh? And there's many. I could name so many. Um and then maybe somebody not as famous as, like, I, there's a guy that passed away many years ago. He was a young guy, and he had a very unique style. Uh, and a lot of people probably never got a chance to hear him, but his name was Mitch Hedberg. And Mitch Hedberg did a few comedy albums, and somebody gave me one one time, and I had never heard of him. And this is when he was still alive. And he had kind of like a hippie, very mellow, laid-back delivery. He always sounded a little bit stoned. But, oh, my gosh, the stuff this guy would come up with was so right on the money. I mean, hilarious. He did a bit where he would talk a lot about being a comedian and sort of the life of being on the road and doing comedy gigs. And he he said one time that he was doing a tour with some other comedians, and when he got on the elevator at the hotel with them, he realized that they all smelled alike because they would all use the, the the shampoo, conditioner, and soap that the hotel had. He just thought, just the way he said it, I know it probably doesn't sound funny when I'm saying it, but just the way he said it was hilarious. They all had this, like, matching smell because of the hotel shampoo. Anyway, you had to be there. All right, who is it? 210-599-5555, the comedian that always makes you laugh. Scott is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Scott, good afternoon. Hi, Jack. Uh, I'm going to say Bill Burr. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I love him when he says, uh, you know, mothers say they had the hardest job in the world. Try being a redhead roofing a house in July. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he is really good. He is very enjoyable to watch, like, when he does the late-night shows and and they're kind of kicking it back and forth with one of the hosts. Great stuff, Bill Burr. Uh, Thank you, sir. Uh, Mike is on KTSA. Hi, Mike. Hello, Jack Riccardi. Uh, my guy would be Ron White because he represents the state of Texas and does mm-hmm. it really well. Um, I particularly like his, uh, instead of an electric chair, we have an electric sofa in our state. <laughs> <type conference>. <laughs> <laughs> so, You know what I like about Ron White, too, is he has that pacing. He does that thing where he kind of like makes you you know it's coming, you know it's going to be great, kind of makes you wait. Well, yeah, and, and, he, and he drinks a 
a half a bottle of scotch for every every you know yeah. uh, what's the word performance. So, yeah. Yeah. He has a great yeah he has a great delivery some great uh, insights he does he gets a lot of work he gets a lot of gig I see him everywhere uh, Mike good one thank you Ron White and um, who's your Bill Burr who's yours the comedian that never fails to make you laugh two ten. Five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Of course, you got your legends. Um, I did one time. I think it was about nineteen eighty nine, uh, roughly, give or take a year. I, I had a chance. Bob Hope was still touring, and it just worked out that I could go to this gig. And I I bought a ticket. I took a date and I bought a ticket. And um, I didn't really know what to expect because I'd grown up seeing Bob Hope on television and. You know, he would he would do his comedy specials for the holidays, and he'd be on with other people's shows. And here he is now. I think he was eighty nine because I think he was born in nineteen hundred. So I wasn't really sure what how great this would be. I just figured you, you want to be able to say you saw Bob Hope. Bob Hope at eighty nine years old was on fire. I mean, the material was can't miss the delivery, the pacing. I don't know how he aged after that, but I can tell you when he was 89, he still had it going on. It was a great, great gig. Last summer, I drove cross-country with a friend of mine. We split the drive, and we switched every half mile. (laughs) The whole way across, we only had one cassette tape to listen to. I, I can't remember what it was. It was good, though. I liked it. We were in Salina, Utah, when we were arrested for not going through a green light. We pleaded, maybe. I was feeling good. I had just received my bachelor's degree in calcium anthropology, a study of milkmen. Even right. Uh, yeah, no, we're, a lot of lot of names coming in via email, jack at ktsa.com. Uh, Phil says, Jackie Gleason is my all-time favorite. All you had to do was walk on stage and I would laugh. Uh, Brian, the late, great Robin Williams, absolutely. Um, Josh says, George Carlin. Yeah, I, I mean, sooner or later we're going to have George Carlin, right? Um, Cecilia says, I agree with your all-time pick of Eddie Murphy, but my current favorite comedian right now is Sebastian Maniscalco. Have you ever seen him? Don, have you ever seen him, Sebastian Maniscalco? No, I don't think so. Oh, you gotta, you got to check him out. He does a lot of stuff about being Italian. It is spot-on funny, and he spares nothing. I mean, he, t- he tells it the way it is about families and food and having Italian parents, and it's hilarious. Very funny guy. Does a lot of work. I think he gets a lot of gigs right now. Uh, very funny guy. All right, who's the comedian that never fails to make you laugh? 210-599-5555. Tom is on the radio. Tom, good afternoon. Hey, Jack. Um, yeah, you just played it a few minutes ago. Stephen Wright for me, uh, oh, number yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, when he when he came out, his style was so different um, from that, you know, rapid fire that so many guys do. So that's what I liked about it. I think it was very brave because he, you got to like figure him out when he first comes out on stage. It it doesn't grab you right away. But then once you, you get into it, you can't get enough of it. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah it's I a very different time, style. But... I, probably nobody yeah. else like that, right? I would think there's nobody else that really does quite what he does. 
No, I've never seen anybody else like that either. I think his, my favorite joke was I bought a map of the United States, actual size. That was pretty good. <laughs> That's right. And I couldn't fold it, yeah. All right, Tom, good one. Um, David is on the Jack Riccardi Show on KTSA. Hi, David. Hey, Steve Martin. Steve Martin just had a birthday. Steve Martin. Uh, yeah, we forget that he did down. a lot of great stand-up before he was in all those movies and TV and everything. Great stand-up comedian. Yes, yes and uh, I think from the 80s and earlier, that was the best. Yeah, yeah. He was he was doing the Carson show probably, I think, in the 70s. But uh, great choice, uh, Steve Martin. Thank you, David. Uh, Kat is on KTSA. Hi, Kat. Hey, how's it going? It's going. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I love Matt Rice. He is hilarious. Oh, yeah, the the really young guy. Yes. Oh, yeah, he Lord. is funny. Yeah. He is hilarious, and he's so interactive with the crowd. Oh, my gosh, it's hilarious. I was going to say, every clip I've seen of him, he kind of goes, like, off his script or his whatever he has planned. And you're right, his um, ad-libs with audience members, which... Obviously, he has to be very quick-witted, right? They're hilarious. Yeah, he's super quick-witted. He every time I see him, I just I'm in tears laughing at him. He's yes. Great. Yeah, and he really he has the audience like eating out of his hand. I mean, he's he looks so young that I think people are almost like pulling for him, right? Yeah, he's he's the same age as my son. It makes me feel so old. <laughs> well, these days, cat everything makes me feel old. So why not one more I thing, right? It. Uh, yeah, Matt Reif is uh, the name, if, and if you haven't heard him, you should check him out. You can, of course, you can Google any of these people. Uh, almost every comedian uh, these days is is on TikTok, and um, you can kind of get a taste of them. Th- this is a great time for comedy because not only are there a lot of people doing comedy, but again, there's so many ways to experience it uh, compared to just having to wait to see, you know, who would be on the Tonight Show. By the way, speaking of the Tonight Show, can we? I think we need to put a vote in for Johnny Carson himself. I mean, Johnny Carson is his his um, monologues when he was the host of the Tonight Show from the '60s into the early '90s. Those are great, and and some of the best ones were the ones where he's bombing with the audience, because when it's starting to go downhill, and he realizes it, he actually, in my opinion, he actually gets funnier. Like he turns on his own material. He. He kind of goes again. He turns on his own. Turns on himself. He turns on his writers, but it's some very funny stuff from Johnny Carson back in the day. All right, the comedian that never fails to make you laugh. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. We've had a lot of people on email mention Robin Williams, but Debbie says I remember when Jonathan Winters would be on with Robin Williams on the Tonight Show, and and I don't know if you've ever seen that. Don, did you ever see that where he'd have them both on? Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams, unbelievable, unbelievable, the two of them together. How about, you know, here's a name no one's mentioned yet, Rodney Dangerfield. For such a long time, Rodney Dangerfield had basically uh, kind of like a, a shtick. It was, I don't get no respect. And it was amazing to me how long and how varied he could get, you know, variations of that, like from that one sort of, pose or starting point so much so much material and he'd do the thing where he was tugging at his collar and i don't know was he sweating for real or was that part of the act too i don't know he's looked kind of sweaty 
But yeah, Rodney Dangerfield. Um, George says Bob Hope. Uh, Glenn says Joan Rivers. You can email me, jack at ktsa.com or call 210-599-5555. Scott says Ralphie Mays, too fat to be fat is a classic routine. Uh, who do you like? Who makes you laugh? Mike is on the radio. Hi, Mike. Jack, thanks for taking my call, man. I'm going to throw yeah. a name out there. The guy's daddy. hasn't been, been around for a while, but uh, old school, fluffy shirt, Gary Clower. I vaguely, help me remember who, I remember the name, but help me remember what he did. Uh, he talked a lot about family. Uh, cousin Eugene, Uncle Versi. I mean, it, it was all based mm-hmm. on family growing up dirt poor Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, I've had to actually go and pull the dictionary out to understand some of the terms he would talk about. But it was very good, clean no swearing, no, no. sexual windows, none of that. Just excellent, excellent, good, clean comedy. And did, uh, like I said, the guy's been dead for oh, jeez, long time. Did but, did he have kind of a like a very expressive face, like kind of a rubbery he, kind of face? Is that he, am I remembering the right did, guy? He always that I remember. He always had the big frilly collar shirts, you know, real <laughs> fancy frilly collar shirts like they wore the yeah. back in the Victorian yeah. days. And that was kind of that was kind of his thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I I encourage anybody look the guy up. Um, excellent, excellent stuff. You will definitely laugh. Very good, it. very good. Yeah, that's a name from the past, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, that. Got a little sample of him, if you like. To hear oh, good. It. Let's hear that, Jerry Clower. I'm not so sure that none of us have ever been loved by an earthly creature until we've been loved by a dog. Some of y'all been loved by a dog. Look at that. If I had time for you to get up and give testimonials, I'm sure your story about a dog loving you'd be better than my story. <laughs> oh, I remember we got a letter from a lady up at Oklahoma, Mississippi. It said, Dear Mr. Clower, please don't rob me of the joy I will receive by giving your little daughter, Katie, a world-famous black toy registered poodle dog. Now, I wanted this lady to go to work for me. Do you hear how she put it? She said, are you going to rob me of the joy I'm going to have? That almost sounds like a televangelist there, doesn't he? Has that kind of same uh, delivery. Um, He was on Hee Haw a lot. That's day. okay. That's where I remember mm-hmm. him. Thank you. That you just you just opened the whole thing up for me. Now I remember where I saw him. Okay, yeah, he's the guy I remember. Kind of a very expressive. Fa- I've always been interested in how some stand up. You probably noticed this. Some stand up comedians are very good, and they they literally just stand. They're like they're at the mic. They pretty much stay in one place. They might pace a little bit back and forth. And then there are comedians that have this incredible like physicality. Like one of the things I like about Sebastian Maniscalco. Watching him is like watching a guy do a workout. He is physically, and I think it's because we Italians, we talk with not just our hands, but like our whole body. We have, we can't help it. And if you could even see me now, the arms are flying. But he has this very like physical expression way of telling the story. He does this great bit. It's about watching people in Starbucks when they get their food. They, some people eat it out of the bag that it came in. Which I'd never thought of before, and I think I had even done this. He's like, why do people not just take the, the muffin out of the bag 
and just eat it like you eat a muffin. They, they take little pieces of it out of the bag, little like, like little shreds of it, and put them in their mouth, and they look around, and they look like they're, they act like they're eating something you're not supposed to be eating because they keep it in a bag. And it's not funny when I tell it that way, but when you watch them do it, absolutely hysterical and true. I mean, all this stuff's got to be true to be funny, right? Allison says, Norm, McDonald's, uh, Norm McDonald, uh, hands down, always makes me laugh. Um, another vote for Ralphie May. John Panette, see that? A couple of votes for John Panette. Matt, thank you for that. We're going to go into the night with more of your uh, favorite comedians and the results on the River City Oral Surgery JR poll question. Uh, but right here, we're going to check the Jack chat line. Uh, you can call this number anytime while we're live or if you're listening to the podcast or you think of something you want to get on the show, middle of the night, you think of it, whatever, 210-599-5550 for the Jack chat line. Hi, Jack. This is Mark in San Antonio. You were just speaking about the transgender shooter that shot up the school in Nashville and talking about um, you know, the government response and the cover-up. And I wanted to say, you know, what they're doing there, that really is a free speech uh, infringement, and uh, they are banning a book. This is a manifesto, mm-hmm. and, and they want to go off, you know, talking about how the Republicans and Florida and all that are banning books. Mm-hmm. Well, here is a book that needs to be read by the American public, but they sure as hell won't let us read it. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I mean, it's really simple. If there's anything in there that is technically or specifically about the security of a building, you just redact that. But it's got to be something in there that's more um, incendiary or socially objectionable. And again, it may be that it reveals uh, lies or incompetence that were told around that incident. Uh, another, another one on the Jack chat line. Jack, Chris from San Antonio. My biggest fear isn't the fact that maybe a conservative will go off the rails and try to kill somebody or two or three or four, but the fact that then the reaction will be so strong that it will come down hard and literally take the rights away from everybody. And then all I got to say is you all voted for it. This is what you get. Thank you. Bye. That was a reference we were talking yesterday about the, the theory that the, Trump indictments are intended, obviously they're intended to indict and convict Trump, but they're also intended to, to uh, provoke rage and frustration in people in the hopes that something like J6 gives the left the pretext for doing more of what we know they want to do anyway. So yeah, I appreciate that. Let's check one more here on the Jack chat line. Hey, Jack, this is Alan from Spring Branch. I was wondering on that trans shooter, if it's possible that there's something in that manifesto that goes against their narrative. Like, in other words, is there something where maybe this person realized that uh, uh, they didn't get the help they needed because they were being covered up by all this uh, trans stuff instead of actually getting the help with their problems and they weren't solving the root cause of their problems. And maybe they were kind of even against the trans community. Um, but it seems like maybe that's an option where there's something in it that kind of debunks their narrative. Mm. Okay. 
Thanks, Alan. I appreciate that. Um, I I will say this: we may be overthinking this a lot in the sense that maybe it's just this simple. Maybe maybe the the fact that one of the arguments about trans is is it are you really in the wrong body or do you just have a dysmorphia? Do you just have a uh, do you need mental health instead of physical alteration? And so if you were trying to defend it as, oh, no, no, th- this is real, this is not a delusion or a, a dysmorphia, then the worst thing that could possibly happen would be a trans person committing uh, a heinous, violent criminal act, right? You can't have that. Uh, I, I mean, maybe it's that. I, I But I, I feel like increasingly when I see the intensity of the secrecy, there there might be more to it even than that. There There might be something in there that, reflects badly on the very people that are keeping it secret, keeping it covered up. By the way, I don't think it'll stay covered up. Something tells me one day this thing will just pop out and, you know, in in Snowden fashion, this will just suddenly be in the in the public domain. But for now, it isn't. Um, remember the Jack chat line, always open 210-599-5550. All right, we're talking about uh, the comedian that never misses. We're getting a lot of emails and I'm I'm happy about this because uh, John Panette was always great. So funny talking about his experiences as a big guy. Uh, Mike and Bernie says, um, loved his bit about eating low-carb bread. I remember that bit. He did a bit about going to an all-you-can-eat uh, Chinese buffet and how angry the guy got because he was there for hours. And, you know, I mean, just he he took on his own weight and appearance and had a great deal of fun with it, great comedy with it, John Panette. Uh, there's a lot of guys like that. Um, Fluffy is kind of like that. He kind of talks about his size a lot, too. All right, who do you like? 210-599-5555. Terry is on the radio. Hi, Terry. Hello, Jack. Good evening. Good evening, sir. You use so who's a comedian that always minutes. makes you laugh, Terry? Yeah, you, you used the phrase a couple minutes ago, a classic routine Mm-hmm. I would submit that the who's on first. Abbott oh, yeah. Costello. Abbott and Costello. Goodness, I, could, I could listen to that thing 74 times, and I would mm-hmm. laugh just mm-hmm. as hard. It was, it's just incredibly funny. I love their movies, too. I know, they're, I know those are considered p- kind of B-grade uh, you know, movies, but when they show those on the classic movie channel, you know, all the different Al- Abbott and Costello, uh, like, you know, road road adventures, and they get they get kidnapped and all these different things. I think that stuff's great. Yeah, good choice, Terry. Thank yeah, you. But... Um, let's see. Mark is on the radio. Hey, Mark. Hey, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How you doing? Uh, so my favorite comedian that would never miss would be George Carlin. Yes. Yeah. It is really amazing to see like an old routine and realize it applies today. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the uh, bit he did on uh, baseball versus football. Probably one of the favorite ones out there. The great George Carlin. Yeah, I think a lot of guys today, whether they know it or not, are really standing on his shoulders. Mark, good to hear from you. Thank you. George Carlin. Got a lot of email about him. We got email about Red Fox. Uh, Let's see. What else did we get here? Um, You know, Don, has anybody mentioned Don Rickles yet? Uh, Not yet. Well, I think we need to throw him in there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. Warmth. 
Um, one of my favorite, Don, did you ever get to see the Don Rickles routine where he performed at Reagan's second inauguration? I may, I, I'm sure I have. It's sure one of the inaugural balls or it's, I mean, it's not the actual inauguration swearing in, but I mean, it's one of the, one of the, uh, parties or whatever functions when Reagan is, uh, at his second inaugural. So it's 1985 and it's, it, he's wandering the stage and everybody in the government is there. Reagan is there. Bush is there. Their wives are there, George Schultz, everybody. And he's he is like single he's like a sniper. He's just going around spotting people. Who who would think you could make a joke about George Schultz? I mean, how do you do how do you even do that? Nobody could <laughs> nobody could do that, right? That's he so did true. it. He did it. And uh, um and he's joking about Reagan and he's joking about how the Secret Service agents are gonna take him out with a blow dart, and it's just uh it's like the stuff he did at the you know, Dean Martin roasts mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just transferred over Those to the hilarious. federal government. Every now Those and then, great. every now and then, I'm I'm lucky to catch uh, an episode of Johnny Carson when he was on there yes. quite quite often. And you you have to think his type of humor. I just do not think it would work in this day and time. Do you? I think it would. I think it would get. It, it would be very controversial, and he would be the subject of a lot of like bans and boycotts and. Cancellation. He he'd be in the position Dave Chappelle is in, you know. Oh yeah, that's a good. Where thought. he'd good be thought. doing it, and he'd have a fan following, and and he could make a fortune. I mean, he'd, he'd make exponentially more mm-hmm. money now. But you're right. I mean, they would be tr- they would be coming after him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, great, great uh, Don Rickles, uh, great at right up until the end. And I don't think a person alive, it, you know, even even the the actresses and actors that Johnny Carson would have on the show. They they were not yeah. um, beneath, you know yeah. him him making fun of them or oh no, <laughs> you, we've played the bit. I know we it's been a while, but we've played the bit where where uh, uh, Carson had Frank Sinatra on as a guest. He was the scheduled guest, but Don Rickles crashes the show because he was taping his series. He had a TV series. He was taping in the same building, and he comes into the Tonight Show. And tells this story. Do you remember the story about Frank Sinatra? Mm-hmm. That is, first of all, he does all this mafia humor, yeah, I know which no one else could get away with with Sinatra but him. But then he tells this story about uh, he's out with a girl and he's on a date and he wants to impress his date and he sees Frank Sinatra in the same restaurant, so he stops by the table and he says, "Frank, if you if you wouldn't mind, um, when you know at some point, could you maybe just come over and I want this girl to see that I know you." And Sinatra is like, oh, yes, of course, you know, the prince, right? So he finishes his meal, Sinatra does. He goes over to to Don Rickles' table where Rickles is sitting with his date, and he starts to say hello to Don Rickles, which is what Rickles wanted him to do. And Rickles looks up at him and says, Frank, for God's sakes, can't you see we're eating here? (laughs) Just, just, and I can believe that, not only is that a funny joke, I can believe he probably did that. He seems like the guy that would do that, right? Oh, you know he would. Yeah, of, of course. Um, so, yeah, great ones. I want to grab – let me grab uh, Charles here real quick because this is a name we, we cannot go without mentioning. Hey, Charles, who's your uh, comedian? Uh, Tim Conway. Oh, man, I'm so glad you mentioned him. God, it doesn't matter who he worked with. He could make yeah. anybody crack up, especially when yeah. he did the old man routine. Yes. That I old man with the white hair. Yes. What about the elephant routine where he does different stories of the elephant? Yes. That is so hilarious. 
I, and I love how they they said years later uh, when he worked with Carol Burnett and her cast, he would go way off script. Yeah, and exactly. they never knew they never knew where that was going with him. I love that even more now know, that I know that. The elephant scene was unscripted. He just yep. Off. He and, and uh, yeah, ever seen. Yeah, he worked great with that uh, group of people. Everything he did was funny. Tim Conway, thank you for that, Charles. Thank you, sir. You know, four o'clock in the morning. I don't think many of them are playing. At any rate, yeah. Now, how do you how do you deal going down doing the show? You know, you know, as you say, you're not as young as you used to be. A lot of stress doing the show. Yeah, there is a lot of stress. Um, you take your painting materials down there? Oh, no, there's oh. not that time. Awesome. <laughs> uh, usually, I just uh, get the legs begin to go. I was talking to an athlete the other day, a professional. He told me he was. It was on a bus. and <laughs> You had no way of knowing it. I had no way of knowing it. I knew he was on a bus. He was in trouble. So uh, he said he played with the Washington Redskins. And he said, you know, the first thing they're going, John, talked very fast. And uh, he was trying to get off. He couldn't get off the bus. The legs were really gone. <laughs> and uh, so somebody just dragged him off and faced him again. But at um, any rate, uh, he said the first thing to go are the legs. And I find that at 6'5", uh, you're on these hard floors, um, legs go. Yeah. You really go. The mind, of course, say hey, that was gone a long time ago. <laughs> but the legs, when they go, everything goes. Yeah. Jonathan Winters with Johnny Carson. Um, I have the feeling we will have a lot of spillover on this topic into tomorrow. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to the Jack Chat calls and some emails uh, on that tomorrow. Of course, we'll have a dish tomorrow, too. Getting excited for Friday. Um, on the JR poll, would you say you are very comfortable with your financial situation? Those are the words Janet Yellen used, saying she believes 70% of Americans are very comfortable with their personal financial situation. On the poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, 86% said no, not very comfortable. 14% said yes. And we'll have a new poll question. We go live tomorrow here at 4. We took you back to the year 1985, this week in 85. Uh, earlier, and the number one song came from an album by Tears for Fears called Songs from the Big Chair. Funny story about that album, which was huge. It was originally going to be called The Working Hour, but they changed it to Songs from the Big Chair in reference to a TV movie the boys had seen called Sybil about a woman with multiple personality disorder. I remember that movie. I was a made-for-TV movie, Sybil. And Sybil only felt safe when she was sitting in her analyst's big chair from that album. Number one this week in 1985, we leave you tonight with Shout.
Peace out.